Welcome, everybody. So glad to have you back again for this edition of the History of Christianity. We're looking today at part 12, and this is going to be kind of a time to, to pause where we're at and look at the overall impact of Constantine. It can't be overstated how much of an impact he had, not just in his day, but also is still having to this day in Christianity, the way we do things at church. You're going to see a lot of things that you may not have ever thought are why we do things the way that we do. And you may look back in history and think, well, those are things that developed over the last hundred years or since the Protestant Reformation or since America was established and the church moved to America. What you're going to find is that it actually originated at this time with Constantine. So we'll take some time today to look at that. Obviously, this won't be the last time we talk about Constantine. We'll be talking about him for some time. But this just kind of will give us a way of seeing some of the big things that changed about the church because of Emperor Constantine. There are a lot of broad impacts that Constantine had on the church. Many of the things that we're going to look at, we still have around today, or they're very similar now to what he did at his time. The biggest thing that happened right off the bat was the end of persecution. That made a lot of difference in the life of the church. Obviously, people that had to deal with the fact that they might be killed, they might be put in prison, they might be tortured. All of a sudden, not having that weight on them, that's a big deal. But it also opened the door for people to come into the church. We look at that overall as being a positive thing. We do want people to come into the faith. We want people to come in to the church. But there were some negative aspects to this too. The embracing of Christianity by rulers and also their subjects was looked at differently by different groups of Christians. Some welcomed the favor and an influx of new people. It's hard not to think, well, this is a great thing. We always want people to come into the church. We always have wanted Christianity to spread throughout the world. And the fact that now even the, the very ruling powers that tried to stop it for so long have embraced it. How could you look at that being a negative thing? Well, some people didn't see it that way. They saw it as a great apostasy. And we actually at this time start to see that some Christians begin to withdraw to the desert to live lives of meditation and asceticism. They've separated themselves out from the church because they feel like it's not pure anymore. Bringing people in from outside that don't know how to do things and in such large numbers that it's overwhelming and you can't train them and teach them the right way. In their minds, it's led to some changes in the church that were not positive. Also, when you've got the ruling powers having a lot of voice in the way things are done in the church, that can lead to some problems as well. So we see this now, that movement of people to get away from the church. Now, they're not cutting themselves off from the church. They're just withdrawing. So we, we see that starting now. But there were some that did want to cut off from the main church. They broke communion with the church at large. And just in their minds, it had this was such a negative thing that they couldn't stay really having the same feelings about the church. And in their mind, the solution was just to break away. But most Christians reacted to the new situation with neither total acceptance nor total rejection. It was a middle ground. The first thing we want to look at as far as particular ways that Constantine affected the church was in worship. Before Constantine's conversion, Christian worship was relatively simple. Churches met in homes. 
They then began to meet in cemeteries, particularly they would go to the graves of martyrs. By the third century, they did start to meet in simple structures that would be very much like homes, but they would be dedicated just to the church. But they would always be very simple, not ornate. They barely could have anything at all. All that changed after Constantine's conversion. Christian worship began to be influenced by imperial protocol. When Constantine walks into the church, he wants things to be a certain way. And it needs to be in keeping with the way that he would be comfortable with things being. And very simple and stripped down is not it. One of the things that they began to do was to burn incense. Incense was a sign of respect for the emperor. So if the emperor is going to embrace your religion and, and possibly be coming around, then you are going to want to respect him. So the burning of incense, one of the things that happens still in churches today, we think about incense burning from the Old Testament perspective, but really the embrace of that practice into Christianity came about as a result of Constantine coming into the church and people of the day wanting to show respect for him. Officiating ministers, they would do their services wearing very simple everyday clothes. They didn't wear anything to differentiate themselves from everyone else. And that kind of is in keeping with the attitude that they would have had. They were in leadership, but they were servants, and they wanted to blend in with everyone. They didn't want to stand out. Well, that now has changed. The ministers begin to appear in luxurious garments. They began to differentiate themselves in what they wear. The custom was also introduced of beginning services with the processional. So why do we have music before a service starts as people are coming in? You can think about that. Well, why would that be? It happened at this time. Just another thing that with the bringing in of the, the kind of the way they did things in the imperial sense, now that becomes part of the church. And as I said earlier, these things last to this day. Here's one that's lasted to this day. Another big one is choirs were developed. Overall, the congregation began to have a less active role in worship. It went from being very simple to being very structured and people having a role. The services started to become something different than they had been, and these elements were added. Why do we have choirs? A lot of churches don't have choirs anymore, but for a long, long, long time, you didn't walk into the doors of a church on a Sunday morning. There weren't people in the choir loft. All of that started right here. In a general sense, Constantine's conversion had an impact on Christian life and discipleship. One thing that happened was superstitious extremes began to be developed. Why would that happen? Well, you, you're bringing in pagan people who had very particular superstitious beliefs and they're coming into the church, but they're not coming in without baggage. You know, we all bring baggage into our religious beliefs and our even reading of the scripture. We have things, presuppositions, things we believe. We don't leave those at the door of the church. We bring them in. So we're as guilty of this as anyone. But this particular group, they didn't have a clue about Christianity. They didn't know anything about it. And a lot of the things that they thought they knew about it were wrong. It's not surprising that they would bring in their own stuff when they came in. And because of the numbers and influx, we'll see this in just a moment, they were not really able to be trained correctly. Rather than Christianity making an impact on their lives, which it still did, 
their coming into the church made a big impact on Christianity and changed some things. What do we mean by the superstitions being developed? One thing is churches took great interest in the tombs of martyrs. Many of them began as they were being built. They would build them on top of these graves, these tombs. Some even went to the extreme of unearthing the remains of martyrs and placing them under the altar, thinking that that would have some kind of magical or special supernatural effect by having those martyrs' physical remains there. That's not bad enough. They also would go out and unearth people that they weren't even sure were martyrs or that nobody had ever said was a martyr. People would come and say, God's given me a vision or a dream, and this person was martyred, so let's go get their body and bring them. And a lot of times there was nothing to it than whatever reason. Don't, don't know why they thought that. Could have been completely made up. Maybe it was sincere, but maybe they just ate something bad the night before and had a crazy dream. Whatever, it doesn't matter. They were bringing in remains of martyrs to be placed under the altar of churches that bodies that may have not even been that person. And yet they did that because they thought it would have such an effect on worship and the church and even for their own lives. The relics of saints and of New Testament times were said to have extreme powers. If you had some physical object that belonged to somebody that we read about in the New Testament, it has supernatural powers. That's not true. There's nothing to that. It's crazy. But they believed that, and they would try to go and find these relics. Sometimes they would find things that weren't those relics, but they said that they were. One example of this is Empress Helena. That was the mother of Constantine. She went to the Holy Land, and for whatever reason, she thought she discovered the cross of Christ. It just happened to stumble on it, I guess, one day. I don't know. But she comes back with the cross of Christ, and it, word got out about that. And obviously, if you think a relic is going to be a big deal, if you've got the actual cross Jesus died on, man, there's no telling what it can do. It was said it had miraculous power. So all of a sudden, all these pieces of wood that people would say were the cross of Christ, you could find them everywhere. There was enough of them to build, you know, a thousand crosses. There's no way, even if there was any conceivable way you could have the cross of Christ at this point in time. Remember, this is hundreds of years later. Even if it was there, which it wasn't, and you couldn't have found it if it was, there was too many pieces to have it actually been on one cross. So even if it was true that you could have it, how would you know that you actually did have it? It didn't matter. You have a piece of wood. You say it's the cross of Christ. It's got special powers. Everybody's impressed with that. One of the things that happened with people coming in in an influx, church leaders fought against this superstition. They did not accept this and did not want it, but they were not successful in fighting against it. There were too many people coming in. Remember, the practice was that if you were going to come into the church, you would come in as a new believer, but you wouldn't be fully accepted into the church until after you were baptized, following a long process of discipleship that would take up to three years. Well, all these new people coming in are not going on a three-year program. They're in, and there's really not a whole lot they could do about it other than just kick them out, which that wasn't going to happen. So these practices changed. And when we think about this, we know you don't have to have a three-year pro process. You don't have to have a three-year process. But to not train and disciple new believers, especially when they're coming out of such pagan backgrounds, that's a problem. And it's a problem we still have even now. I think one of the things that 
as the church we've done through the years. We've been very focused on evangelism and bringing in new people, but we don't always have a great program for discipleship and taking somebody under your wing and really showing them what it means to be a Christian. People get that some places. Some people that have the initiative do, but a lot of people never really do. And that is what was happening now, and it had very negative effects on the church. Well, even the physical church buildings change. Churches built before Constantine were very simple. A great big room, somebody's house, very simple structures. Constantine was not going to have that. He's the emperor. He wants things to be a little more fancy, so he had started having churches built. The Church of St. Irene was built in Constantinople. It was very ornate. His mother, Helena, built in the Holy Land the Church of the Nativity. You can still see that now. And another one on the Mount of Olives. Similar churches like this started to pop up throughout the empire, not the simple structures that they had before. Some of these churches were polygonal or almost round, and they contained an altar in the center. But most of them followed the rectangular plan of the basilica. This was an ancient word referring to the great public building. So it was just kind of the way most of the big buildings at the time were built. They used the same pattern for the church. The main part was a great room divided into naves by two or more rows of columns. These churches became known as basilicas because they followed that same pattern. They had three main parts, the atrium, the naves, and the sanctuary. The atrium was the entryway, and as you walked in, there would be a fountain in the middle for ritual washing so that you could do all that before you entered in. The naves were the most spacious section of the basilica. In the middle was the main nave. It was set aside from the lateral ones by rows of columns. So that's a, that middle part is going to be your biggest part, and then on either side of that are going to be rows of columns with uh, continuing on. Most of the basilicas had a total of either three or five naves. They had very few that went more than five. There were some that had nine, but five usually was the big one. Towards the end of the main nave was a section reserved for the choir, usually fenced in. Think about that again. Choir lofts in churches all around. What do they have? They're up and they're elevated in a special place at the front, and many of them are fenced in in some way or there's some kind of border that you walk in and out. A lot of those have been redesigned now. They don't have that anymore. A lot of churches don't even have choirs. But if you go back even a few years ago to the way churches were being built, in the United States, in modern times, they still had this same kind of design. On each of the two sides of this section, there was a pulpit used for reading and exposition of scripture. Then the sanctuary was at the end of the main nave. In a place near the middle of the sanctuary, there was an altar, and that's where the elements were placed for communion. So that was a big focal point of worship even still. The back wall of the sanctuary was semicircular, forming the apse. And the apse was a concave space behind the altar. Against the wall of the apse, there were benches for the officiating minister. So now we start to see those ministers, they're starting more and more to be differentiated from the regular people in the church. They're wearing different clothing that sets them apart. And now they have a special place to sit as well. These basilicas were adorned with polished marble lamps and tapestries. They were beautiful buildings, very ornate, very fancy, nothing like what they had before. If you go into your church, wherever you may worship, 
probably you're not in a place that's quite as ornate as this, but you're also not in that simple just one room setting. Many of the churches in our country have a setup that is like this. Maybe not exactly like it, but at least having some of the elements, even in churches that wouldn't be considered to be, they wouldn't consider themselves to be very fancy. You have stained glass windows, you have special places for the ministers, at least if nothing else, where they, they preach and teach from. And you may have a choir loft that's fenced in. Maybe not every one of these elements, maybe not polished marble, but certainly more than the simple rooms that they started in. Walls were covered with Christian mosaics, usually scenes from the Bible or Christian tradition. So churches began to have these have artwork around. We see that a lot too. You may not have a church that has painted mosaics, but stained glass windows, paintings that are put up, murals that are painted that have these biblical scenes. We still have those now. When did they start? What started happening? It's one of those questions you don't really ask. But here's the answer to it. It started at this time because of the emperor getting involved in Christianity. Just wanted to show you a simple floor plan. You see at the top the basic floor plan as you walk in the atrium, you walk into where the naves are. See those rows of columns in the middle, middle there. And then you walk on through there into the, uh, into the rotunda, the latter parts of it. You see two uh, atriums, one at the front and one at the end. This one is designed to have been over the tomb of Jesus. And you see there also Calvary. Do we know where Jesus' tomb is? No. Did they know where Jesus' tomb was? No. They decided that this was it, and that's where they built it. At the bottom, you see more of a three-dimensional uh, view of what this would have looked like. There were other buildings as well that stood near the basilica. The most important one was the baptistry. They had a separate place uh, for baptizing. The baptistry was usually round or polygonal, and it was large enough to accommodate several dozen people, so you could baptize a lot at once. Baptism was still usually administered by immersion or by pouring. Throughout Christian history, for the majority of the time, those were the two ways that baptism happened, immersion and pouring. It wasn't until much later that they just began to dab. Uh, they did do that in some places at this time, but it was done out of necessity. If you're someplace that is, there's not a lot of water around, you may not have a choice but to do that. Or if you're in a place that's a very cold climate, as the Christianity begins to move from the east to the west and Western Europe and Eastern Europe, some of these places get very cold. You can't go dunk somebody in water in the middle of winter. So you would do this out of necessity. It was done that way. Nowadays, we see that still immersion happens, but it's very common practice for some churches to do, uh, do the dabbing instead of the immersion or by pouring. But for most of the history of Christianity, these were the two ways it was done. There was a great curtain that separated the room in two, one side for men and one for women. And that was a good thing because baptismal candidates descended to the waters naked. This is the way people were baptized for years and years. From the very beginning on to this time and beyond, you went in with not a stitch of clothes on. You came out and were given a white robe, symbolically showing your purity now that you've been baptized and your sins have been washed away. But you went in naked, so it was good that there was a side for the men and a side for the women. 
and that curtain separating them. I'll just stop here and say I'm so glad that we don't still do this to this day because I would not want to be baptized and I would not want to be involved in baptizing anybody naked. So just glad that's one thing that has changed. So what are some conclusions we can draw? The ancient church continued its traditional customs. Things didn't radically change all at one time, but the seeds were planted for change to come and things, some things did change, but still the traditional customs, the way things were done in the church, they didn't radically change overnight. They still continued those. Communion was still the central act of worship. It was celebrated every Sunday. Baptism was still by immersion, so that had not changed. But you could see changes everywhere, and we've talked about those. So what was the great question for the church? The church faced this question, what, to what degree and how to adapt to the changed circumstances? Change had come. There was no going back. So to just keep things status quo was not an option. They had to change. How do you deal with that? That everybody agreed that while adapt adaptation was necessary, the traditional faith of the church should not be relinquished. Everybody agreed on that. What they didn't agree on was how to adapt to a new age while still remaining faithful to the original message. And folks, we still have that same question hanging over our heads today. Our world is changing. Our country is changing. We're living in a United States that while people, the, still the majority of people would identify with some religious beliefs and the majority being still Christian, we're seeing as each generation comes, that number is growing less. There is a, an increase in people who either are atheists and have no religious beliefs, or even if they're not atheists, they don't identify with a particular set of beliefs or religious practices. They just would consider themselves to be spiritual. They believe in a God. They don't know a lot about him. They don't think that any organized religious group could share with them anything about him. So they do kind of things their own way and they don't go in with a particular group. We're still trying to figure out how to adapt to changing circumstances while still remaining faithful to the original message, which cannot ever change. So the same thing they were dealing with then, we, we deal with today. We're going to stop there today. This was a little bit of a shorter time, but it gave us a good chance to just kind of take a breather, set up what is coming next. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at specific areas that, that began to really develop, some changing, some getting better, some getting worse. So I think you're going to really enjoy each one of these, and you're going to start to see more and more clearly how we got to where we're at today, the way we practice the Christian faith, what we believe about it, the things that came about during these times, they resonate today. You're going to learn more and more, and I hope that you'll enjoy that. Thanks once more for being with me today. I hope that you have a great week. God bless and look forward to seeing you next week.